ahead and be dismissed and head on downstairs. The rest of us, if you'll grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. I think it was um, last summer that my parents came and visited. I know some of you got to meet them here not too long ago. And we got to go up to um, last year, before we moved out here, we went up to South Dakota, uh, to Rapid City, that area. Um, actually not Rapid City, but it was Custer, um, to Custer State Park, and had a really good vacation there for a couple of days. And While we were traveling through Wyoming, I uh, had this situation of a uh, guy was going, um, he was coming at me, and not on my side of the road, thank, thank the Lord, but he was kind of approaching me, and he flashed his lights at me, and my dad said, hey, you better slow down, uh, he just flashed his lights at you, there's probably a police officer up ahead, and I was like, oh, they don't really do that around here, but yeah, I'll go ahead and slow down, and yep, you know, a couple miles down the road, there's a police officer uh, waiting to uh, pull me over if I was speeding. And I wasn't speeding, by the way, but I told my dad, I said, I'll go a little bit slower. <laughs> so, um, And, you know, I really appreciated that. And I've noticed um, since I've moved out here that people do that out here too. I go out, uh, it was one Wednesday. It wasn't a Wednesday. I think it was a Monday. Yeah, it was a Monday. I went and I was traveling to Denver for ordination service. And it was kind of a cloudy, rainy day. And couldn't really see very far away, but when I was going uh, towards Denver on 34, this guy blinked his lights at me, and I knew what to do. And so I slowed down, and yep, there's one of our sheriff's officers right there, side of the road, and he's ready to pull someone over. You know, I really appreciate that. When I was driving around the suburbs of Denver, no one ever cared to tell me of that. We had our own police traps, speed traps, but... No one ever thought about doing that, but I really appreciate the concern that people have around here trying to watch out for other people, not tr- trying to condone bad behavior, but, you know, just kind of a gentle reminder, slow down. And, uh, you know, it's good to be folks like that that are concerned about others, but when it comes to spiritual things, we don't sometimes share that same concern. And as we come to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul is so burdened for the Thessalonians that they have a concern about the day of the Lord. And I want to talk a little bit about the day of the Lord. Um, Some people really mess that up and think it's the rapture. It's not the rapture. The day of the Lord is written about a lot in the Old Testament prophetic books. And so it's not about the rapture. It's about God's wrath upon sin in this world. And that's a day that has not come yet. The day of the Lord is not the rapture. It's not a 24-hour day, but it's a period of time after the rapture until the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And uh, some of the verses in the Old Testament talk about this day of the Lord. It's a day when the proud will be brought low. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. Zechariah 14, verse 1. It's a day of destruction from God Almighty. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Joel chapter 1, verse 15. Sinners will be removed from the world. They will be um, 
removed and the land will be destroyed. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 18. It's a day of the Lord's vengeance. Can you get the picture now? It's described as a battle in Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 5. A, a battle, the Lord's battle against the nations. It's a day of judgment upon the world. Ezekiel chapter 30, Obadiah chapter 1, Zephaniah chapter 1. It's mentioned several times in these prophetic books. And it's always talked about as being certain to come. Even in these Old Testament books. Joel chapter 2, 3, and Zephaniah chapter 1. And 2 Peter chapter 3, if you want to turn just a couple of pages, describe a little bit about that day when it comes. 2 Peter chapter 3, if you'll hold your place there in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, but 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, talks about the day of the Lord. It says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Day of great destruction, isn't it? Very sobering reality, the day of the Lord. And why would Paul write to the Thessalonians and be concerned about their lack of concern about this day? Well, I think the reason why is because they really were not concerned about it because they didn't really think they would be there during the day of the Lord. And that is true. The Bible teaches that we're going to be raptured up. And that's why this uh, event follows the rapture in chapter 4. It is after the rapture. And this day of the Lord is going to come upon the world and we're not going to be here. We're going to see the aftermath and we're going to see it, but we won't be here. But also, another concern that comes up here in chapter 5 of why these folks are not concerned about the day of the Lord is not only a selfish attitude, but also an attitude towards worldly things. A lot of us can be unconcerned about the day of the Lord because we have conformed to this world. And uh, if you look at chapter 1, verse 10 of this book, it says that the Thessalonians were waiting for Jesus from heaven, wait, uh, whom He raised from the dead, waiting for God's Son, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. By the way, another verse that we're not going to experience this day of wrath. Okay? It's a pre-tribulational thing. We're going to leave before the tribulation comes, this day of tribulation. It says that we're going to be delivered from this wrath to come. And you'll see several verses here in chapter 5 in relation to um, that fact. But what Paul's trying to get across to the Thessalonians is that your attitude about God's coming wrath will affect how you're living today. You may not be here, and you may not be here when the rocks start falling out of the sky and killing people, when the plagues are being spread around, when the sun turns to darkness, Stars are falling from the sky. You may not be here. You may not suffer that wrath. But if your attitude is a lack of concern about that day, it's going to affect how you live right now. It's going to affect how you live right now because if you take it seriously that this day is coming, the unsaved will notice. They will notice that. And they will be convicted, hopefully. But if you lack concern, 
we're going to see here in this chapter that the unsaved are not concerned about the day of the Lord. So really you had the same attitude as the world and you're making no difference for Christ. And one purpose for why you remain here on earth as a Christian, once you're saved, wouldn't it make more sense if God just took you straight to heaven? But He has a purpose for your life, doesn't He? He wants you to make a difference for Christ here on the earth. And so uh, Paul is concerned that these, these Christians in Thessalonica live conscious of the day of the Lord. And we should as well. Live conscious of the coming day of the Lord. And how should you live differently because of the day of the Lord? Verse 1 says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. I think it's a great testimony of the ministry of Paul that he writes in verse 1 of the times, talking about the duration of this time before it comes, and um, not before it comes, but the day of the duration of this time, and the seasons. And he's talking about the characteristics of this time here. He uses a different word. He says, You have no need that I write unto you. See, the, it's amazing that only in three Sabbath days, and maybe a month, maybe a little over a month, that these Thessalonians, they got a real education on future things. I mean, it's just amazing uh, how much they already knew. But they definitely knew what they needed to know to live differently for Christ. It says in verse 2, For yourselves know perfectly or accurately, would be a literal translation of that word, accurately, that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief and the night comes. Right? So they were, had a sober reality that they knew that this day was coming. That it was coming and that it was certain. It, he uses the present tense here in verse 2. When he uses the word comes, cometh as a thief in the night, it's coming as a thief in the night. It's so certain that it could be today. You know, that it could come at any moment. moment. It's at the present time. And so, um, what we see here in verses 1-3 through is a contrast. A contrast of the saved with the unsaved. And you're going to see this contrast throughout uh, these first 11 verses. That you have the saved here in verses 1-3 through that know about the day of the Lord and they are certain that it's going to come. And then you have the unsaved that don't know about the day of the Lord. And how should you live differently uh, with that? You should live with concern for the unsaved. That's how you should live. You should live with concern for the unsaved because you know what is coming. You know that it is certain. Second of all, in verse 3, you know it's unexpected. It says, For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. This verse tells us very clearly that it's unexpected. It comes as a thief in the night cometh. You know, if someone has ever burglarized your home, if they ever robbed you while you weren't there, I'm sure you didn't have it on your schedule. Right? You, it was unexpected, right? You didn't coordinate, okay, I want you to come at, uh, on this date I won't be there. Okay? Uh, and some people are not as protective and wise as they should be. 
Uh, and they basically say that, but most of us are not going to be planning something like that. And the same thing is, uh, is being used as a figure here in verse 3. That the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief and the night comes. It's going to be sudden. And then he uses another figure as travail comes upon a woman with child. Uh, you know, it's going to come suddenly and it's going to come with pain and that pain's going to increase. It's going to be a very painful and destructive time in history. And then it's also going to be a day that's going to be or inescapable. If you look at the latter half of verse 3, it says in chapter 5, verse 3, that they shall not escape. And this is worded in a very particular way. It's a double negative that's used, and so it could be translated this way, and they by no means will escape. It's that certain. It's an impossibility for them to escape this tribulation, the wrath, the physical wrath of this. And see, we as believers, when we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, not only are we saved from eternal death and separation from God, but we also are saved from this wrath to come, from this day of tribulation that's going to come as well. And see, these Thessalonians knew something that the unsaved did not know. They knew that this day was certain. They knew that it was going to come suddenly, unexpectedly, and that, it, that these people were unprepared, and that it was going to come and it was going to be inescapable. Jesus uses the illustration of Noah, and I have been so impressed with how God has used our study on Wednesday night coincide with my messages on Sunday. It's not planned that way, but it ended up being that way. Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 39. Jesus said this, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven. He's talking about this same day of the Lord, not the rapture. And some people take this out of context. The context is these signs from heaven, this wrath to come. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were born, excuse me, but as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. That's how life was. This guy built this ark for a hundred years years in the middle of a desert okay he was doing something weird he stood out and these people came up to him thought he was the local lunatic and he surely explained why he was doing what he was doing and warned them of the judgment to come but we see from jesus own explanation that they went about life as usual they ate they drank, they married, and were given in marriage like they're going to have the rest of their lives to live together until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be inescapable. And that's what's emphasized here by Jesus is that these people, once Noah and his family and those animals went into the ark, there was no escape. There was no escape at all. 
And the same is true with us. You know, you know that the day of the Lord is coming. If you didn't know before today, it is coming. God's wrath is coming upon sin in this world. He is a just and holy God. He's made a way of salvation possible. But He gives this gift of eternal life, but He does not shove it down anybody's throat. You have to reach out and you have to receive it. Okay? You have to receive it for yourself. But the world has an opportunity. They have a choice to receive it or reject it. And just like in the days of Noah, if you reject it, you're going to experience this wrath to come. You're going to, uh, it's going to be unexpected. It's going to, but it is certain and it's inescapable. And so you and I, we know the truth that the day of the Lord is coming. Does it really make a difference in your life? Do you live any differently because of that? Do you live with a concern for the unsaved? That was, I believe, on Paul's mind here. That these people, they know something that these people don't know. So do something about it. And warn them about that day that is coming. You know that these people that are around you, they don't care about the day of the Lord. They don't, they're not prepared for that judgment. And you know that by no means they're going to escape it. Are you concerned enough to warn them? Are you concerned enough to tell them the truth? Or are you more scared of losing that friendship or that relationship instead of losing that person to this wrath and having them experience this wrath in years to come? Secondly, live with character before the unsaved. Verses 4-6. through six. Verse 4 says, But ye, brethren are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. He's saying here clearly, hey, you're not in darkness. You're not alienated from God. You're not going to experience this day of wrath. It's not going to be a surprise to you because you won't be here. But then verse 5, Ye are the children of light and the children of the day, and we are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Live with character before the unsaved. We're supposed to reprove the evil works of darkness. If you want to turn, if you will join me, hold your place here and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. It uses this same kind of language about light and darkness. And really, it's written by the Apostle Paul. And so we are not taking this, I don't think, out of context, but to interpret one from the other, I think it helps. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 16. It says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore, he saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. You see here that Paul even re-emphasized this with the Ephesians, a very another wicked Greek city, that these uh, believers would live differently on purpose. They would live with character before the unsaved. 
And um, I'm going to use Noah as another example. It's just amazing how this figure, this hero of the faith, really lived out a lot of this. Uh, Noah, as we talked about on Wednesday, uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse verse 7, says, By faith Noah prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world. His obedience and his faithfulness to God, his character. It says in Genesis chapter 6 that he was blameless in his generations. Basically that he was a testimony among his contemporaries of what a true believer is. And you know, God is calling you to do the same thing today. To live differently on purpose. To live with character and not with compromise before the unsaved. It says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we are children of light. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief, but ye are children of of light, verse 5 says. Now what does that mean? Ephesians chapter 5 kind of talks about what that means. That you are um, that you are saved. You are not in darkness, alienated from God, but you are reconciled with God. You are a child of light. Okay, you are, and if we get this kind of figure from John, I know he's a different author, but 1 John chapter 1, where God is light and there is no darkness in Him at all. And so we are children of light. Uh, in comparison with the unsaved, you have His salvation. First Peter chapter 2, verse 10, just write it down, says that we have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's First Peter chapter 2, verse 10. You have His salvation. You know His ways. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Those that are spiritual understand spiritual things. Just like light casts the truth or reality that's in, that is clouded by the darkness, the same is true with you. You understand the Word of God because you are a child of light. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. He illuminates you. He enlightens you to what the Word of God says. The unsaved are continually, even in, um, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, they're dead in trespasses and sin. They're blind to the truth. And the same is true today. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says that you are lights of the world. So let your good works be known before men and bring glory to your heavenly Father. My paraphrase, by the way. But, I mean, that's basically what uh, Jesus was saying is reflect His character. Live differently on purpose. It says that you are a child of the day as well. Not only are you a child of the light, and I word it this way, you have, a, you have the capacity now to shine for Jesus Christ, but as a child of the day, you have an opportunity to shine for Jesus Christ. He uses this illustration of the day. When does light shine? During the day, right? At least brightly, okay? So it's, it's shine in reflection at night, off the moon, I understand. But it shines brightly during the day, doesn't it? That is the time period, that, that is the opportunity to shine. Jesus used this same uh, phrase in John chapter 9, verse 4. I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. John 9, verse 4. And so it's used in a way of opportunity. That you have an opportunity 
to make a difference on this earth, are you doing it? Are you really that different? Uh, This passage says, Therefore let us not sleep as do others. See, we can be... He uses this word sleep in a figurative way. Just like when you're sleeping, you're not concerned about what's going on around you during the day, right? You're out. <laughs> you're, you know, you don't have a, you have a lack of concern. And he's using this in a figurative way for morality. That those that sleep are very lethargic about moral things. He says, therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Those words, watch and be sober, have to do with character. Being, living for Christ. And so others sleep. They live indifferent to spiritual things. Should believers live indifferent to spiritual things? No. Because when they do, they're, in, they're making no difference in the world. Uh, he uses this word watch. And that is a figure of a watchman. An ancient watchman on the city tower. What was his job? To watch out for attack, right? He had to be prepared. He had to be ready. He had to be alert. He didn't. He could not be asleep. If he did, he endangered the safety of the whole town. And so what Paul is calling these Thessalonians to do is to be spiritually diligent. Not to have this, ah, oh, take it, or I can leave it as a Christian, you know. But taking it seriously as a Christian. To fulfill your responsibilities as a believer, as a follower of Christ, and making a difference in this world. Then he uses the word sober. And this word sober means what it, what you probably think it means. It means not to, to be free from intoxication. To be free from things that would be toxic to your body. And uh, he's using it in a figurative way to, towards self-discipline. That you would never yield yourself to the control of something else. But he has really in mind in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, being yielded to the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, whereas there is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. And so that is exactly what's going on here, that you would be protected from spiritual toxins. That you wouldn't conform to our world, to the morality of this world. It's so easy as Christians to take it easy and say, you know what, I really don't want to cause any, any uh, offense or I don't want to cause any frustration, so you know what? I'm not going to make a big deal about this moral issue. And when you do that, you, re- you are compromising and you are lacking self-discipline. God calls us to live by His moral standards. And when we do so, we make a difference among the unsaved. They take note. They take note that you are spiritually diligent, that you are self-disciplined, that you're controlled and yielded to the Holy Spirit, and they notice And they take your claims at the day of the Lord's coming seriously. And so the world, as we compare ourselves to to the unsaved, Christians to the unsaved, there's another comparison here. The Christians should be living in the reality of taking their morality seriously and having a good testimony for Christ, being alert and caring about spiritual things. The unsaved don't. And see, we lack that opportunity to shine for Christ. The fact is, the world doesn't need any more Christian hypocrites. And that's so real. That's so easy for you and I to just be lethargic about spiritual things, about moral things. 
And when we do so, the world sees and they say, oh, there's another Christian hypocrite. They say one thing, but they live totally different. We have an opportunity to live different from the unsaved. Your godly moral standards will be noticed and you can share when you have opportunity how God has changed your life. It's not that you are better than the unsaved. It's that you have a testimony to share with the unsaved. And when you ruin that testimony by how you live, when you don't live on different on purpose, you ruin that chance to witness for Christ. And then verses 7 through 11, we see that he's encouraging them to live for Christ. Verse 7, for the mystery, excuse me, reading wrong verse. Uh, for they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. You see the despair the condition, the hope that these people have. And then verse 8, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. I'm going to stop there. We see a comparison between the saved and the unsaved again. The saved live for themselves. Look at verse 7. We see it in their lifestyle. They live to... You know, they live for their sleep. You know, those that sleep, sleep in the night. Those that get drunk, that get themselves drunk, they get drunk in the night. That's what they live for. But then we have the comparison in verse 8 to the saved. It says that the saved, that they have spiritual armor, verses 8 through 10. It talks about this armor, the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. My question to you is, are you living for Christ? You know, He's given you all that you need to live for Him. First of all, He's given you and He supports you with spiritual armor. It says in verse 8 that uh, it words it this way, when it says putting on the breastplate of faith and love, it's actually worded in the past. You already have this spiritual armor. You just need to use it. You just need to depend on it. It says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation, looking forward to your salvation. And so he's describing the spiritual armor. You have already been given when you accepted Christ. You have every reason to live in faith in Christ. You have every reason to live with Love for Christ. You have every reason to live with expectation of Christ coming. And he uses that um, helmet of salvation as protecting your mind. As, you know, as Christians in this world, we can get so focused on what's going around us that we forget that Christ is coming. That Christ is coming. And this helmet of salvation protects us from getting discouraged and wanting to quit and looking for Christ to come. But you also have spiritual accountability. Look at verse 11. It says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. He says, first of all, comfort one another or encourage one another together as a group. There is something to be said about gathering together like this. It, it is a time where we can encourage one another, not just by the preaching of the preacher, 
but the fact that other Christians are here and that they are remaining faithful and their example to us can be an encouragement to us. So corporately, we can encourage one another. And this goes hand in hand with what Hebrews chapter 10 says. But let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but here's our word, exhorting or comforting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching, the day of the Lord. And so it's so important that we use the equipment that the Lord has given us to live for Him. Not only do we have spiritual armor to protect the vital organs of our spiritual life, we think about our heart and our lungs, and this, you know, this breastplate would cover that area on the front and back, that we would take our faith in Christ seriously and live and walk in faith, but also live in love for Christ too. Focused on Him. Doing what we, what we do for Christ. There's going to be times when you do not want to serve somebody in this church. And you need to love that person because Christ loved you first. You don't do it because they are worthy of that love. You do it because you love Christ. You see? We're equipped with every reason to live for Christ. And then the hope of His soon return. But then we also have this spiritual accountability to support us, to encourage us to continue to live for Christ corporately. But then I want to point out one more thing before I let you go. It says, edify one another even as ye also do. This only occurs in the New Testament here. The word one another doesn't is not the usual word that's used. It actually is literally edify one one. It's like nine one one. <laughs> edify one one. That's literally what it says. And what does it mean there? It means to build up one another one on one, individually. It's only used this way in the New Testament. And there is something to be said that, you know, here in the church, we have an opportunity to encourage one another just by our presence. Of course, through the preaching of God's Word. But there is something to be said as well. When you know of a need in this church that I don't know about, you have the moral responsibility to go support that brother or sister in Christ individually. To go build them up in the Lord. You have that kind of support as a Christian to live for Christ. Is that making a difference in your life? God's wrath is coming to judge this world of sin. And has that? are you really concerned about that? Are you living conscious of that today? Does it give you a concern for the unsaved? Does it give you a compulsion to live differently in this world? To live with character? To live maybe taking the higher ground so that you are not looking exactly the same as the world, but that you kind of stand out and you're okay with standing out like a sore thumb if it's for Jesus' sake? And then also living for Christ. Doing what you're doing in the name of Christ so that you're pointing people to Him. Are you living differently? Like Noah, we need to live faithful in our generation. Again, Noah is a great example of this. You realize that he labored on that ark for 100 
years. What a testimony. It says not only was he blameless in his generations, in in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it says that he also walked with God. Are you living differently in our world on purpose? We should. We should live conscious of the day of the Lord. You're not going to experience that day if you're a Christian, but the unsaved will. And are you bringing that to their attention? Are you living with concern? Are you living with character? Are you living for Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You, Lord, for this time that we had to study Your Word. And Lord, what a great opportunity we have to shine for the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that You would equip us as You've already said in Your Word. Help us, Lord, to use our spiritual armor. Help us, Lord, to take advantage of the support system we have here on earth with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us, Lord, to live different on purpose and make a difference for Christ's sake. Lord, if there are brothers and sisters in Christ here today that really have gotten more focused on the world than focused on You and what You're going to be doing here in the world, pray that You would call them back. Give them the courage to step up to confess their complacency, to confess their conformity to the world, and get serious about spiritual things. Help us, Lord, as First Baptist Church, to be serious about spiritual things and to be a light in this community and do everything we can to be a true light and not, sh- and not shed any disgrace on the name of Christ. Lord, help us to be faithful when our opportunities come. Lord, help us to respond to Your Word as You've worked in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.